Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This week, what has happened to Britain's former interpreters left behind in Afghanistan? I'm worried about life and the lives of my children. We can't go outside. The way our checkpoints, a lot of the Taliban, they are searching the people. Uh, so I'm very scared. I'm very afraid. Did chaos in Whitehall cost lives? The Taliban is actively hunting people who worked with us and for us. We have evidence of people having been hunted and executed. Also on SITREP, the army's drive to help victims and perpetrators of domestic abuse. And the inside story of how the CIA and British Special Forces did the groundwork for the invasion of Afghanistan. Their job was to link up with the tribes. They took $3 million in non-sequential $100 bills to help sort of grease the wheels. There has been near universal praise for the British military operation, which evacuated 15,000 people from Afghanistan in just two weeks as the country collapsed into chaos. But now a whistleblower has claimed that chaos in London at the Foreign Office meant many more were left behind and in some cases have since been killed. We'll look at his evidence shortly. But first, what has happened to interpreters who worked with British forces who did not make it out in the op-pitting evacuations? Rosie Layden has been talking to three of them. Life is hell for us actually here. An Afghan interpreter who's been waiting since August to find out if he can come to the UK. He's currently hiding with his wife and young daughter. I just turned off my cell phone because there was one message which, which made me very, very worried. That was that you will be, you will be punished soon. So, yeah... We first spoke several weeks ago now. You were waiting for a response from Arab. What have you heard from them in the last few days? I have received another email today. Still they are saying, oh, we are working on your case. We cannot reply to the individuals. And we, we really do appreciate for whatever you did for us. And all blah, 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 just nothing else. And they said, okay, and we'll let you know as soon as possible. As soon as possible, it's already been 100 days. But if... If it gets late, if I'm not no more, if my family is not no more, then what what I supposed to do with that eligibility or support? Six weeks ago, we spoke to another former interpreter who sent us footage of a Taliban patrol out looking for him. He sustained multiple injuries, jumping out of a third floor window to escape. Now he, his wife and four young children are hiding in a new location. They live in terror of another knock at the door. I'm worried about the life and the lives of my children. We can't go outside of uh, fear. Since recording this interview, this man was forced to flee his accommodation again. He filmed the Taliban cars which came in the middle of the night while he hid on the roof. He sent us these messages. I don't want them to take me alive. They're very cruel. That night, the Taliban arrested a former American interpreter and they also arrested former Afghan commanders. My wife and children have a nervous breakdown because of the Taliban's fear. My eldest daughter asked me, Dear father, why did the Taliban want to kill you? It's about 12 or 13 hours away from Kabul to Kandahar. Kuchai is one of the lucky ones. He received his M number, the confirmation of a successful application to Arab, and drove his eight-month pregnant wife and three young children to safety in Pakistan. The way our checkpoints, a lot of the Taliban, they are searching the people. Uh, So I'm very scared, I'm very afraid. After a long, frightening journey, 
Islamabad is a huge relief. When I came to Islamabad and I talked with my caseworker, now uh, I'm absolutely happy from the British government, from my caseworker. To date, the Arab Relocation Scheme, jointly administered by the Ministry of Defence and the Home Office, has received 89,000 applications for residency in the UK. Seven and a half thousand have been flown to safety, but for those interpreters still hiding from Taliban death patrols, the wait to find out if they're eligible to come to the UK is unbearable. Rosie Layden there. While the Ministry of Defence was responsible for helping former interpreters, the Foreign Office was tasked with supporting other vulnerable Afghans with links to the UK, including politicians, soldiers and former embassy guards. Raphael Marshall, who was working as a senior desk officer, has given written evidence to MPs claiming only 5% of the 150,000 people who asked the Foreign Office for help got any. He says thousands of emails weren't even read, that decisions were slow, sometimes arbitrary and driven by political optics. Dominic Rabb, who was Foreign Secretary at the time, points to the fact that 15,000 people were evacuated and says while lessons can be learned, he thinks we did a good job. Conservative MP Nusrat Ghani does not think a good job was done. She was contacting the Foreign Office at the time, trying to help many Afghan women escape. There was a moment when we thought, are they reading our emails? Because we're sending everything, images of passports, ex- every data that was needed, we kept sending. And, and we were having conversations like, are they reading our emails? Because it doesn't make sense because we keep being told the right people will be extracted. Send us the information and they will be helped. But they weren't helped. My women and girls weren't helped. And it's humiliating and it is shameful. There's been a complete failure in statecraft. There's been a complete failure in leadership here. Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark is here. Michael, those are damning words from a Conservative MP against their own government. How damaging is it to the UK's reputation and influence for the administration of the evacuation to be seen as bungled? Oh, and it's very bad. I mean, it, it, and it seems to be getting worse the more we know about it. The fact is, these figures are now out there. And although you know, only specialists will really look at the figures, the image is pretty clear. And I mean, I can, you know, I can tell you for a fact that in the very early day of, uh, days of op pitting, the estimate was that about 5,000 people, 5,000 would need to be rescued. And then the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, as he then was, um, says, oh, we, we did very well with 15,000 that we rescued. So three times the original estimate turned out to be rescued and that was a tenth a tenth of the 150,000 who claimed that they needed to be helped so this is a pretty bad performance and the point is that you know this was a great strategic defeat nobody would question that and so the next question is how do you cope with strategic defeat how do you react to it and I'm afraid that the the news seems to, to take this particular story from bad to worse. And does it have implications for getting locals to work with our armed forces in future? I suspect it will. I mean, our armed forces may, you know, are, are planning now to work in places like East Africa, maybe the Indian Ocean parts of uh, Asia, quite likely. The army is going to be at work around these land hubs, two or three different land hubs in the world. Uh, and in troubled areas, 
um, whether or not anybody you know listens to the news in, in Britain, the fact is that the opposition, whoever they may be, will certainly be saying to local residents, you know, don't trust the British. Look what happened in Afghanistan. Look what happened in Bosnia, they'll also say. You know, one of the messages that this, is, this gives ammunition for is to say you can't trust the British. They will not look after you. Well, during the evacuation, former soldier Ash Alexander Cooper was also working to get vulnerable Afghans to safety. Well, for those on the ground that I was speaking to during the entire operation, it did feel fairly chaotic. And so what we've heard written and spoken about in, in Parliament this week doesn't really come as much surprise to those who were you know, doing everything they could to try and evacuate as many vulnerable Afghans, eligible Afghans that they could. I was working with a network of, of international friends and colleagues who were just rallying around because the system was so overwhelmed by the numbers of applications and Therefore, we had to try and find a way to ensure that those who we knew were most vulnerable and most at risk of being hunted down and murdered by the Taliban had a fair chance of getting out. Um, so, you know, we all pulled together. It's sort of in spite of the system, really. So you weren't directly involved in the administration. Were you aware of problems, though? I was aware, really, of the problems from the Afghan perspective, because I was inundated and I'm still inundated daily by Afghan friends and colleagues and others who were sharing their experiences of, you know, emails being unanswered or one email being received saying we fully support your evacuation, but then nothing really practically offered to them in terms of how that would you know, manifest in something useful that would enable them to actually get out. It was an unprecedented situation, unprecedented demand. Could anything more reasonably have been done? For those on the ground, I mean, we mustn't conflate the the incredible efforts by not just the military but by foreign office and other government personnel on the ground working 24 hours a day to try and do the right thing and make the best out of a bad situation but i think that the feeling from them and from all of us who were trying to help there was a lack of urgency really centrally to understand the nature of the problem and the scale of the challenge that we were facing and i was encouraging as many others were to, to you know to encourage leadership uh, in the government to just move a bit faster and think of every 12-hour block as being the very last we would have and anything beyond that was a bonus. You said you're still inundated now. How does the situation compare to how it did during up-pitting? Well, it's a slightly different situation that, you know, clearly the, the clamour to get to the airport is, 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 has gone away because there are no more flights from the airport, you know, being organised by the, by the Western Coalition. But those who are left behind are in no better situation now. Arguably, they're in a far worse situation because the Taliban is actively hunting those that they consider to be the most value or the highest value uh, people who worked with us and for us. And some of them have already been executed. We know that we have evidence of people having been hunted and executed. And so they are having to move house constantly and, and remain in hiding, which means they can't earn you know, a wage. So they can't feed their families. And as, as has been reported widely elsewhere, you know, the Afghan winter is, a, is upon us and, and as well as you know, the, the, the risk of being hunted and killed by the Taliban. If they don't get them, then the Afghan winter and starvation probably will. Are there any people do you know of who have been executed that you were trying to help? Yeah, there's, a, there's at least one that I, I know who um, did try to get in and had all the paperwork to be evacuated and, and for all sorts of reasons was not able to get on the flight. Um, and once he went back into hiding, he was found and he was murdered in front of his family. Um, and it's, just, it's, it's absolutely devastating and, and the feeling of helplessness that there's nothing more we feel we can really do other than advise them to try and remain safe. And if they can find a way out that isn't going to put them or their families at increased risk, then they should really try to do so. 
let's not pretend that we have had the best system as the UK. You know, there's many things we we can and must learn. And there have been some you know, quite good success stories by other European nations, for example, who quite quietly but successfully managed to get their people out. So I think we need to perhaps work more collaboratively with some of our international partners with whom we served you know, for those 20 years and see how they've managed to do it. Because you know, if there are routes out that are safe and successful, then, then we owe it to the people that we promised to support uh, to try and do everything in our power to help them get out. What do you think we can and should learn? That in a crisis, we have to you know, understand that all hands are on deck and that you know, leadership requires trust and respect. And if we're expecting and, and requiring our men and women to go forward and put themselves in, in danger and in harm's way, then the leadership at all levels must model the behaviour that they seek others um, to, to deliver on their behalf. Ash Alexander Cooper, uh, Michael Clark, at the height of COVID, we heard calls for more use of military experience on leadership and planning. Can the military help the civil service more behind the scenes in major crises? Well, uh, the military is very good at planning and it's very good at working from a, a plan through to execution. Um, that's fine. The problem is that they tend then to take over any organisation that needs their help because they do it in a very distinctive way. And you could say, well, let the military take over it all. But then you're you're admitting that the rest of the government is not competent enough. It just needed commitment, resources and leadership. And it didn't have any of those things. And this was a, you know, when we say what lessons should we learn, the lesson should go right to the top and say, look, if we've got a National Security Council, that's that's designed to deal with these things. If we've got an integrated review, it claims that we're very good at integrating our Whitehall departments. Well, clearly in this case, we weren't. We were terrible. Well, before we move on, let's learn a bit more about what's happened to some of the thousands of Afghans who were successfully brought to new lives in the UK by the RAF and Army. Around 170 of them were placed in Staffordshire, where retired Major General John Henderson is Chief Executive of the County Council. He's been telling James Hurst how those families are now. I have to say they're remarkably upbeat. I was up there a couple of weeks ago and just speaking to them, um, trying out my the remnants of my diary on them and see if I can make myself understood. We've got about 40 families in total. They're in a hotel in northern uh, Staffordshire. And we've been sort of trying to sort of settle them in, but then also really importantly to move them on to, to their permanent lives in the UK. Yeah, because hotels are not ideal. These are people who've been through an incredible amount and, and they're still in limbo to an extent. Absolutely. But, but what we're trying to do, and it's an interesting thing because the, the Home Office have slightly changed their policy in the last few weeks, which is really good, in that initially they were saying, no, there'll be a national uh, process for them to be settled around the country. They're now saying, look, if people want to settle locally, then they can do. I think that's really encouraging because, you know, since the 1st of November, all the kids have been in Staffordshire schools and we've been engaging with people at like Chambers of Commerce, other employers, to sort of come in and actually, you know, offer employment and try and get these people in the next stage of their lives. So if you've got a job and your kids are in school, you're two thirds of the way to your new life. You're really only looking for housing at that point. And, and our local authorities here have been really positive about identifying housing to help these families in the next stage. There is more support than just housing that's, that's needed, isn't there? And that's exactly right. These are people who've had a pretty traumatic time. So they'll have, they will have mental health issues, not just from the last few months, but they've lived in a war zone for many years, lived under stress. You know, simple things like dentistry, if you didn't live in Kabul, you probably didn't have access to Western dentistry. There's a bit of English classes going on for the adults, a bit of cultural as well. Um, we're working with Refugee Action. Local communities have been really supportive. So people are doing a really good job, but they're also feeling good about doing that. 
for you, having served in Afghanistan twice, this this is a bit more personal, isn't it? It is, yeah. And it's uh, and interesting. I haven't met anyone I know yet, um, and in the group we've got. But, but of course, the places and the names and the themes and just the way that people operate, it's quite a personal thing for me. I, I you know, I, I'm sort of, you know, people ask me, you know, am I surprised? Am I disappointed? Et cetera. I think all of the above. I think it's very hard for us to come to terms with what we've got, what we've got here. But I think the job in hand is to look after these people. And this is a fundamentally different task to the other things we're doing around asylum seekers, because this is about settling these people in the long term in the UK. Major General John Henderson talking to James Hurst. News, discussions and analysis. This is SITREP. A nationwide campaign about domestic violence and abuse is calling on employers to help tackle the problems. The Army is one employer taking part in the 16 Days initiative. It's just a few weeks since researchers at King's College London warned aspects of military culture can contribute to violence and abuse between partners. Well, joining us now are Nathan Ditton, who is Head of Personal Support at the Army Welfare Service, and Warrant Officer Susan McKenna, who is the Senior Army Welfare Worker for the Intake and Assessment Team. Uh, Susan, we'll explain that job title a bit more in a moment, but first, can you just outline for us how the Army Welfare Service can support people with concerns about domestic abuse or violence? The Army Welfare Service then provide a wide range of support to um, service families and service personnel. Unfortunately, um, domestic violence is a primary category that we deal with on a daily basis. We offer this support to people in terms of if they are a victim of domestic violence or abuse, or if they're a perpetrator, or if they're impacted by this in terms of uh, their own well-being and self. This support includes um, liaison with external agencies, statutory agencies in, in terms of child protection plans or safeguarding issues, or it can be on a more personal level in terms of safety planning. But there's a wide range of support we can offer. So when people get in touch, they come to your team first, do they? The intake and assessment team, is that right? Yes, that's right. I would describe what we are as um, effectively a duty or a triage team. And the referrals come through and they can be self-referrals or they can be from um, external agencies. They can be from concerned persons. And from there, we will decide um, whether there's immediate actions that need to be taken in terms of safety planning. And from there, obviously, we can decide the best course of action and support for that person. Nathan, I mentioned that King's College study in the cases it looked at from a few years ago. It found significant gaps in the support available, civilian partners feeling their military partner was prioritised. What have you done to fix these problems? Uh, yes, I mean, the KCL report was, was really useful. Uh, and from our perspective, we'd identified a, a number of the issues um, that were raised in it um, during our own internal reviews. One of the sort of key things that, that we've changed over the last four years has been establishing um, um, the intake and assessment team that um, Susan leads. This gives us a single point of contact um, for all people wanting to sort of seek a service from AWS. And that allows us to provide a consistent service across the country and, and overseas. In addition to that, we've completely overhauled the core specialist training that Army welfare workers receive. They undergo a seven-month um, training course. Um, once they qualify, they, they go through a 12-month post-qualifying process, which improves their learning um, in practice. I think sort of one of the key aspects of, of training is that it's now mandatory for 
all army welfare workers to undertake um, a four-day domestic violence informed practice course. It sounds from what you're saying, Nathan, that a lot of steps have been taken to improve uh, the support that can be given to people when they do come to you. Uh, But when people have suffered abuse, it can be very hard for them to take that step to come to ask for help. Is there more you feel you can do to help them come forward? I think certainly sort of we, we need to sort of continue our efforts to raise awareness. I mean, we are certainly going out to the chain of command um, and to unit welfare um, to improve training and briefings so that they're able to identify domestic abuse. And also sort of just during the current sort of 16 days of action, a wide range of AWS teams across the country are doing awareness events, both within units, but also sort of within the community to sort of improve the, um, the awareness of families of domestic abuse and, and the fact that um, Army Welfare Service is, is there as the Army's professional specialist welfare provider. Susan, prevention is obviously the best route. Um, you can help people, can't you, if they have concerns about their own behaviour. Uh, what would you say to someone listening to this who, who may be tempted to ask for help, but may be very afraid to put themselves in that position? For me, this is integral to making um, productive changes for the future. Actually, that intervention with a perpetrator starts um, from a very, very low level and um, supporting them to look at domestic violence and abuse in terms of their parenting capacities, the impact on their parenting, and, and, and basically being a parenting choice because when a person chooses to perpetrate, um, they're choosing to make those impacts on their children. So in the past, it's been very, very difficult for somebody to come forward and say, I don't like this. I don't like how I'm affecting my family. I don't like how this affects my work. It's been hard to do that, but when they do, it can make, and they've had those motivations to make those changes in their life, it can be so helpful and impactful for the whole family. So would you say it's fair to say that you're working more with them rather than against them in the, the preventative role? You know, you're actually trying to get to the root of the problem. Absolutely. A lot of people are in denial about the impacts of their behaviours on their families. And so for somebody to realise the impact on their families is is amazing, really. And if they've got that motivation to make that changes, they can do and they can be supported through that. Nathan, what if they're worried about seeking help and that that will damage their career or even end their career if they do so? Um, I think I mean, I think the, the point that Susan made was was really, really important. And from the perspective of myself at the senior manager level, what I've seen is that the amount of domestic abuse referrals into AWS has increased. I mean, it, it now makes up around 13 to 14 percent of, of the total work that we do. But actually, what I feel that that shows is that people are, are, are having trust in, in AWS. They are willing to make the referral. They recognize that we're able to offer a professional service to support them and and implement change. And what I would say is, yes, sort of, we are absolutely a confidential service. Uh, We are independent of the chain of command of units. That doesn't mean that there aren't occasions where if there is a identified significant risk to the individual or that that individual faces to others, we, we will in common with all professional providers, we will engage with partners but again, that is in the space of sort of seeking to support families in terms of, of the problems that they're, they're going through. Susan, that, that increase, do you see that as uh, more awareness, more people speaking up, or, or is there an increase in violence? What, what do you think from the front line you're experiencing? I definitely think it's the former. Um, historically, we've had referrals through and they'll come through under the guise of relationship difficulties. 
when in, in fact, when you've, you've obviously explored the issues a bit further, it's, you've then established that actually it's to do with domestic violence, um, coercive control. So people are more aware and they are labelling it more correctly and people are more more able to come forward and actually express these concerns. And we can support them through this, whether it's a victim, whether it's a a perpetrator, or whether it's a concerned family member, we can support them through this. Nathan, it was suggested in that King's College report that some aspects of military life may actually make domestic abuse and violence more likely. If that is the case, is it incumbent on everybody to do their bit to make sure that the cases are reduced? I certainly think that tackling the issue of domestic abuse is, is everybody's responsibility from soldiers within units or all, the, all the way up the chain of command and, and, and it applies to all professionals within the army. Nathan Ditton, Susan McKenna, thank you very much for your time. And if you do want support, search Army Welfare Service online. Their page has phone numbers and emails for you to get in touch. Officially, the US invasion of Afghanistan began in October 2001, except it kind of started before that. It's no secret that just two weeks after the 9-11 attacks late September, a small CIA team were the first on the ground to prepare the way for what would become America's longest war. Soon, British intelligence officers from MI6 had also been dispatched. Well now, a new book, First Casualty, tells the story of CIA Team Alpha, which became the first to fight behind enemy lines after 9-11. Its author is former Royal Navy officer, then foreign correspondent, Toby Harnden. Team Alpha were eight Americans, CIA officers, except with asterisk on one of those who was a Green Beret captain who was seconded for the mission. But they were the first um, Americans uh, behind enemy lines into Taliban-controlled territory after 9-11. So on October the 17th, 2001, uh, they dropped into the mountains south of Masri Sharif, two Black Hawk helicopters at the dead of night, and they linked up with uh, the warlord Abdul Rashid Dostum. And the rest literally became history. So what did they do exactly? So their job was to link up with the tribes. They took $3 million in non-sequential $100 bills to help sort of grease the wheels. Some of these allies were also rivals with each other, so they had to sort that out, and they had to get them to fight. Uh, They had to prepare the way for Green Berets and later on SBS as well, British Special Forces, so that they could coordinate this sort of 19th century horse-mounted fighters that the uh, the ethnic Uzbek Afghans had with the awesome might of, of NATO 21st century air power and capture Mazari Sharif and sort of signal the end of the Taliban regime. Mm, that was the theory. How dangerous was it? Well, incredibly dangerous. I mean, one of them died, Mike Spann, um, former Marine Corps officer who was a member of Team Alpha. He was killed uh, during a prisoner uprising on November the 25th, 2001. These guys went in with Kalashnikovs and pistols. They had no helmets, no body armor. They really were dropping into the unknown. And uh, I mean, Dostum himself, Uh, was notorious for switching sides. Uh, He'd fought with the Soviets against the Mujahideen, who were backed by the Americans in the 1980s. So there were a lot of imponderables in this mission. So that was the tribal leader they met up with, right? Yes, that's right, yeah. Uh, How did Team Alpha's work cross over exactly with British Special Forces? Well, that's sort of an incredible element of the story. So there were eight members of the SBS, although one of them actually was a, a a US Navy SEAL on exchange, a guy called Steph Bass. And those aides had been sent in uh, by the Blair government uh, who wanted to contribute to the war effort. Uh, But there was uh, reluctance 
for these SBS to be involved in quote unquote offensive operations and their Land Rovers have been painted white uh, to sort of signal they were there almost in a peacekeeping role. But on November the 25th, David Tyson, a CIA officer, and Mike Spann were in the fort of Kalajangi when this prisoner uprising, an Al-Qaeda prisoner uprising started. And these eight SBS uh, men were in the Turkish school, which was the American base in Masri Sharif. And so all of a sudden they, you know, were disappointed they were being kept back from what they thought was the main battle in Kunduz at the time. But all of a sudden they were part of a, a 15 man rescue team that rushed to the fort. They had general purpose machine guns. And this was not a peacekeeping role at this point. And they were absolutely crucial in turning the tide of that uprising and preventing it sp spilling out into a recapture of Masri Sharif, which would have been, you know, involved a complete sort of reordering of the history of that period. It's an incredible insight that you've got. What was it like researching for this book? Well, it was fascinating. I mean, all of these people are sort of people who shouldn't speak. The quiet professionals, the silent warriors, um, you know, you don't expect CIA officers to reveal what they've done. But, you know, my pitch to these people was it's 20 years ago, it's part of history. And it was also part of the conflict, which was incredibly successful. Um, and now, obviously, we've had the end of 20 years, it's ended in defeat. But in those first few weeks, um, there was there was victory, albeit, um, you know, provisional. And so I talked to them one by one and uh, I showed them that I think that I was trustworthy, incredible. Uh, and, and they knew that they had a, um, a story, I think, in their heart of hearts that uh, that they wanted to tell. So, yeah, it was it was an amazing experience to be able to piece it together. And just explain to us a little bit more about the CIA, because they're not part of the US military. They are intelligence, but they do carry out military operations. That's right. So four members of Team Alpha were paramilitary officers. Uh, it's not something that we have uh, in the UK forces who tend to have uh, special forces who are seconded to MI6. CIA have their own troops, if you like. But they also uh, gather intelligence. Mike Spann was one of those four. But the team was supplemented with case officers who are traditional spies, if you, if you like. So David Tyson uh, was an Uzbek linguist, former academic, you know, intelligence collector, J.R. Seeger, the chief was a diary speaker who'd worked with the Mujahideen in the 1980s, uh, a Green Beret, as I mentioned, and a medic. So it was a kind of, um, you know, eclectic bunch of people who many of them didn't know each other until a day or two before the mission, who were just put together in that sort of very sort of chaotic, frenetic time when there was this national or international, really, uh, push to get people into Afghanistan to stop al-Qaeda uh, mounting another attack. And how important was the role that Team Alpha played in what was, at that point, a big victory for the US and its allies? Oh, it was absolutely crucial because the first team uh, that you mentioned in the introdu introduction, Jawbreaker, uh, they went in um, in late September. Uh, they went into the Panjshir Valley. In the Panjshir, Ahmed Shah Massoud, the Northern Alliance leader, had just been assassinated by al-Qaeda two days before 9-11. And the Tajiks didn't want to fight. They wanted money and they wanted uh, American air power. But Dostum, the Uzbek warrior, kind of notorious character with, you know, blood, reputedly a lot of blood on his hands, he wanted to fight. And Team Alpha were able to link him up with the Green Berets, link him up with uh, the US Air Force, air controllers who could call in airstrikes. And that was, a that was the crucial military piece of the early weeks, because once Mazari Sharif had fallen, the Taliban were on the run and their regime for two decades became history. Did any of the people that you spoke to uh, for this book have an opinion about the current situation in Afghanistan? Yes, certainly. I mean, 
it ranges from sort of anger, frustration, mourning, all sorts of emotions, but people are extremely unhappy about it. And But what's been very impressive about the Team Alpha members who, and Shannon Spann, who's Mike Spann's widow, who was also CIA officer at the time, they've channeled their feelings into sort of positive action. So they're working very hard to get Afghan allies uh, out of the country and sort of, you know, fill the vacuum that they feel has been left by the US government. And in fact, my own translator who I was working with in Afghanistan a, a year ago, he was one of the people that they helped get out and he's currently staying with me in my mm -hmm. spare room. So, uh, you know, that's an incredible, uh, you know, part of that brings the kind of the story, right, you know, right up to the current day. Toby Harnden, uh, Michael Clark, the CIA is very publicly a quasi-military organisation, very different from the image of MI6. Is there greater separation between the intelligence and military teams in the UK, or is it just kept that much quieter? Uh, no, there is quite a big separation. They're very different organisations. Uh, and incidentally, that prison breakout in November 2001 that Toby Harden talks about near Majuri Sharif, that's on film um, because uh, some news teams captured it. And one of the first indications that SBS personnel were involved were, was that they, they seemed to be speaking with British accents. And that bit of film is out there now. You can see it. But the MI6 is a completely different organisation. I mean, the CIA is a big organisation. It runs its own forces, has its own pilots, its own planes. Um, it's, al it's almost like a complete military organisation in itself. MI6 is very specific. It is an intelligence gathering organisation. It's only about information. When um, one of the former chiefs of MI6 was going around America doing some talks about the history of MI6, he was asked all the time by American audiences, is there a licence to kill? Is there really an 007 number of some sort? And he always said, look, no. He said, in the history that we have, we're publishing, we only ever killed two people, and one of those was an accident. Um, MI6 does not go around killing people. It doesn't engage in those sorts of military operations. It is literally to gather information, to protect our information, and to, as it were, run operations against people who would like to get hold of our information. So it is very, very different. And, and one other thing that's interesting about this is that when the 9-11 attacks first took place, the fact is that British intelligence knew more about Al-Qaeda than the Americans. They knew more about bin Laden because they had been on the ground for longer using human intelligence, which the Americans had withdrawn from, and they had been listening, and they actually knew. And on, on the night of 9-11, when American airspace was closed to all traffic all over the world, only one aircraft flew into American airspace, one civilian aircraft that night, and it was carrying British intelligence officers to Washington so they could tell the Americans what they knew. Quite a thought. Professor Michael Clark, thank you so much for your time. And that is it for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And at bfbs.com slash SITREP, you can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>